This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Our guests today are Christian Turwish, a professor of operations and information management at Wharton, and Carl Ulrich, the vice dean of innovation at Wharton. And we're going to talk to them about massive open online courses, or MOOCs as they're better called, and how they will impact business schools. Uh, Christian and Carl, thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Uh, Christian, perhaps you could start us off by describing the main findings or takeaways from your research. Now, let me, let me preface what we're going to discuss about business schools by saying that Carl and I have been in the business school world for many, many years. We love this institution, uh, and we really want to make sure that we find a sustainable path forward for the business schools. But business schools in the world of these massive online courses are somewhat threatened, and a lot of that has to do with our cost structure. We are very expensive organizations, and there, there are really two main reasons for that. Is one, we do two things. We teach and we do research, but only the teaching part comes with revenues. And so all of the research work that we do, all this great research that is funded for, is funded for by our students. And the second thing, like honestly, like most nonprofits, we don't always have an eye on efficiency. If you and I would run an airline together and we would fly our planes half empty, very quickly bad things start to happen. Yet that culture of efficiency, of productivity, is something that we haven't had in the business schools. And as these MOOCs are coming along, and things that we're about to talk about, these MOOCs are coming along, the cost pressure on our institutions are going to change because suddenly there's a very serious alternative for coming to a two-year degree to Wharton. Right. Uh, Carl, anything to add to what Christian just said? The other other thing I would say is a key finding of our analysis is really to look at what the benefits are that MBA students derive from their full-time MBA experience. And we point out that teaching and learning, the more traditional academic topics, are probably only a quarter or a fifth of the reason that students come and get an MBA program. And that's the piece that we think is most susceptible to change from this emerging new technology, but that probably doesn't impact the other elements of the, of the MBA program. Right. So one of the things I found interesting in your research paper uh, is that you, you talk about the fact that in a MOOC, what is relevant to the business school is not the MOOC per se, but the technology, the video-based technology that is embedded in the, in the MOOC. Uh, and, and this kind of struck me because I remember 20 years ago, uh, uh, there was a lot of hype around uh, the fact that video lectures were available on, on videotapes, or later that they were available on uh, CD-ROMs. And, and each time there was a lot of uh, you know, expectation about what this would do to business schools. But neither of these affected or or sort of disrupted the business school model in any fundamental way. Uh, Do you think a MOOC is fundamentally more disruptive? And I would like to know from each of you, if that is the case, why that may be so. So let's start with the technology. As you say, we find it's very helpful to separate the MOOC from the technology that enables the MOOC. That technology is a combination of short videos, smart testing with potentially automated grading, uh, social networking, online communities, all these things wrapped together, as we've seen with courses at edX, in particular with Coursera, uh, is creating a technology 
that is applied now to the MOOC given away for free, as we've kind of seen it over the courses that we've taught here at Wharton. But that MOOC and that technology are two separate pieces. The MOOC is just one application, and we can imagine many other ways in which these new technologies, we, we call this a super text. That super text, the videos, the adaptive testing, so social networking, there are many other ways which we can deploy that technology. And in those other applications, we believe, is a much bigger threat to institutions like ours compared to taking these courses, teach them to 100,000 students at once and giving that away for free. We, we don't feel threatened by the MOOC. We do feel threatened by the Supertext. I, I make a few other observations about video. Video's been around, it's been available to consumers for 30 years, but there's something fundamentally different about the availability today of video. And I think that's evident if you look at the behavior of consumers online. They're watching Khan Academy, they're watching TED Talks, they're spending a lot of time on YouTube. When I watch my teenagers do their math homework, they do it with their laptop, their smartphone, so they can text their friends, and then, and then they watch a YouTube video to explain how to do the math problem. So video is, is fast and it's available everywhere with just a click. And the big insight, I think, in the first MOOCs was that by chunking the video, by making it just a few minutes long and making it semi-synchronous, that is available on demand during a week of the course, you get a much greater adoption and viewing of that video as opposed to, for instance, having to take a, a video cassette out of a library, check it out of a library, take it home, plug it in, scan, you know, fast forward to the right section, that, that friction substantially diminished the usefulness of video when it was first introduced. Right, no, so, so I, I get the fact that uh, because the video is so easily and readily available that, that the adoption rates are much higher. Uh, but one of the things you mentioned in your paper is that uh, of the three pathways that you describe in your research, uh, the first one is that uh, B-schools will be able to serve more students better and more efficiently uh, as a result of this technology. Now, since each of you teaches a course on uh, Coursera, uh, I wonder if you could draw upon your own teaching experience and show how do you teach better and more efficiently via the MOOC platform than you might do in a classroom? I, I teach product design at Penn. I've taught it for 20 years, and I've recently taught a MOOC in which maybe 100,000 students over four offerings of the course have participated in that subject. And I have, I made 65 videos, short videos that explain some of the key concepts in product design. I found myself when teaching product design two years ago, I found myself in class opening up my web browser, going to my Coursera course and showing my students a video because says, oh, I have this great example, let me show it to you. And then I realized how silly that was and that what I really should be doing is having those students watch the videos without me before they got to class. And so in the last year, when I teach product design, I've posed to myself the challenge, what can we do in the classroom that can only be done when 60 people are together sharing the same time and location? And I have them watch the video offline. And then when we get together, we do a simulation or an exercise or presentations or group work, things that can only be done in that location when we're all together. 
So that's the flipped classroom that's model. That's the so-called flipped classroom. Now, are you using the same model? Through well, your, unlike your Carl, his, his videos are actually funny. And so I, <laughs> I am in a somewhat more constrained environment. But I think the question that you're posing is an important one, that we think about our brick-and-mortar classroom offerings here. I teach a core course in operations management, among other things. It's 12 times 80 minutes that every student at the Wharton School has to take. 12 times 80 minutes, uh, 960 minutes in total. My online course on Coursera is about 40, 45 video segments of about six to seven minutes, right? So you see that there's almost a compression of 50% as you go from the traditional classroom to the online medium. So now the question is, of course, what happened to the other minutes, right? And I think it's helpful to break those up into a couple of buckets. Uh, the first bucket is just there are certain things that we do in the classroom we unfortunately cannot replicate on the MOOCs. These are case discussions, game exercises. Those are moments that Carl describes. Those are things that only can happen when we're together. Together. But I also have to point out that there is a fair bit of waste in what we do in the classroom and that has to do just do with the fact that different students learn at different rates. When a student struggles on the MOOC they can just rewind or they can just read something and then catch up again. Whereas in the classroom you're constrained by a common pace for everyone. And so you really do gain efficiency, you gain productivity as you take the same group of students and have them moved over to a hybrid model. And I think Carla has been on the forefront of this. In the core, again, we, uh, we're, I don't think we're quite as far, but the direction is certainly clear. We have to benefit from that new technology. Now, despite the you know, evident uh, advantages of MOOCs, one of the challenges that all MOOCs face is that the completion rate typically tend to be uh, pretty low. Uh, and I wonder, both as teachers and as researchers, what you have learned through your experience that might be relevant to the B-Schools. Well, the, the completion rate statistic really is a red herring. I mean, people like to, to trot it out, but it, it, it doesn't seem terribly relevant to me. If you think about what the barrier is to registering for a MOOC, it's literally one click in the Coursera environment. So many people enroll to, to check it out, to watch a few videos to see what it's all about. My MOOC requires hundreds of hours of effort. Uh, to complete a substantial design project. Very, very few people are willing to put in hundreds of hours. But, but many people are interested in learning a little bit about customer needs or aesthetics in design or prototyping. So they watch a few videos. So we really think pretty carefully in MOOCs about three categories of learners. Those who are just browsing, those who want to view the material but won't do the work, and then those who will do all of the work. And I, th I think that, so as I say, that, that, that narrow completion statistic I don't think is terribly meaningful in terms of evaluating the success of the MOOCs. Yeah, it's a classic example of what oftentimes people do when an innovation comes out. They take a performance metric that is designed to evaluate the old technology, which is kind of brick and mortar learning, and they take that old metric you know, completion rates is an important thing if you pay, uh, you know, $120,000 for your MBA, MBA degree or, or even more dollars when you send your kids to college. Their completion rate is a really, really important number to track. Uh, and we are anchoring this on the kind of the 95 plus percent completion rate that we have in that world. Taking that number and comparing it to the 5% in the MOOC just absolutely makes no sense. As Carl describes, most of these people, since they don't have to pay anything, they just click and register 
register in an effort that you would maybe browse through a store when you are retail, kind of in a retail experience, you check out an item and you wonder like, oh, do I want that? Well, this is not in some sense purchasing. It's just looking at something. And the, it's just the nature of the web that every looking instance is actually recorded as you enrolling. So I think that, it, that statistic is in that sense not telling anything. And we should uh, focus much more on the participation that one of the students is in. And again, we see the segmentation that some of the students really just want to do some videos. They just want to watch this stuff. And then there are those students who really do the work. Those that drop out at the beginning because they really find that this was maybe not what they were looking for, I really couldn't care less. Great. So, so let, let's push a little further on that $120,000 number you mentioned that MBA students pay to attend uh, 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 an MBA program. Uh, and as you correctly said, joining a MOOC costs nothing at all. I mean, given the fact that to produce content for a MOOC uh, is expensive in terms of time and money, how do you think MOOCs can be made financially sustainable? It, it, it's actually not very expensive. So if you look at what it costs to develop a MOOC, it's it's in, in, in a sustainable mode in the long run, it'd be about $70,000. But, but we reach with a MOOC several hundred thousand students. So we really look at it, if you look at it on a, on a per viewer basis, it runs to about 50 cents per person. And at 50 cents per person, that's cheaper than almost any other form of outreach that we do at the Wharton School. And 50 cents for that kind of engagement, very, very inexpensive. So I'd like to object to the idea that they're expensive. They're just not very expensive. Well, a little bit further math might, might, might help here, right? So we as elite universities, elite business schools are in the business of creating reputation. Reputation is important. It will drive our demand. It will drive how our graduates are viewed in the market. So reputation is key. How do you create reputation? The traditional vehicle of reputation building was research. So if you do some numbers on how much it costs us, when Carl and I sit down and we write a scholarly article that makes a cut into the best academic journals, we found in our report that it takes us somewhere around three, $400,000 of research investments to just get one scholarly article out. For that money, for one single paper, we can basically create somewhere around three, four, five MOOCs with the enrollment that we just talked about. The other reference point that we might uh, use is just the University of Pennsylvania's operating budget, multi-billion, the Wharton School's operating budgets, hundreds of millions, and what we're spending on MOOCs. We're spending about 0.1%, and if not a little less, of our budget on MOOCs that apparently we all believe is the key technology for the future. So this notion that we're overspending, I don't buy. Other forms of disruptions, other forms of concerns we need to discuss, but the notion that this is expensive and we're stealing money from our kind of traditional customers and giving that content away for free, that thread I think is not real. That, that, that was not the point I was trying to drive at. I mean, clearly there is a huge value to, to uh, the knowledge that is disseminated through the MOOCs. Uh, the, the question, of course, is that different schools are trying to monetize them in different ways. Uh, at places like Harvard, for example, they have introduced a paid pre-MBA program. If you were to look at some of the different economic models that are being wrapped around MOOCs, uh, could you sort of give me your thoughts on where do you think this is going and which models are likely to be more sustainable? Well, the, f the first thing I, 
I think we should do is distinguish between MOOCs and other forms of online education. Because I think MOOCs are fundamentally about outreach and social mission. And, that's, and they're not very expensive. And so I think we can easily justify them based just on this, this, the social value that's created. It, now, that's not to say that there aren't some nice economic opportunities for online education. And I would say at, at Wharton, there are two that, that we think could be important. One is executive education. If you look at how expensive it is to send someone physically to Philadelphia to spend a week in executive education, it's, a, it's a, maybe a five or $10,000 cost. And we may be able to deliver some of the benefits of that experience much less expensively using technology. So that's one. The other is that we think that a place like Penn and Wharton can be the originator of content that's used in instruction by other institutions. And that like with textbooks, there's a way to charge per, per use or per, per user for that material. And so that could be a potential revenue source. Yeah, there's a lot of value on the table, uh, especially, I mean, going back to Card's executive education example. Uh, there are lots of people in corporate settings that come to Wharton, and that's great, but, uh, you know, we're talking about tuitions of seven, $8,000 for a week, these people traveling and these people being away from work. And so by design, this is only some privilege that you get if you're working in, in, in top management. There is a large number of other people in executive positions at the echelon below that, that we are right now not reaching, but that we could be reaching through technology. They would love the learning. We can certainly deliver through the technology at cost points way south of maybe $1,000, if not $500 for that one week learning experience online. So we bring those two things together and we're gonna generate a lot of value. And there's no reason to believe that especially with a strong brand like we have at Wharton, we wouldn't be able to also then capture some of the value for ourselves. Sure, so in other words, the uh, you, you can spread the ripple effects of executive education much further, you know, to, to the lower tiers of an organization, if you like, by combining uh, executive education and MOOCs. That's a great Absolutely. point. Absolutely. Right. Uh, well, the other very interesting point in your research paper is that uh, you said that uh, you can teach existing students with fewer faculty members. Now, uh, given the fact that most things tend to happen in academia when they get enough faculty buy-in, uh, do you think that um, uh, unless there is significant faculty buy-in to MOOCs, uh, uh, are, are faculty members likely to really support something that threatens to cut down their numbers in the future? Well, this one is a scary thought, but let's put this in context. Uh, what we do in the paper is we articulate three scenarios that we believe can play out in the world of the super techs. I, as, as I said earlier on, I, I'm not too wild about the term of MOOC because we're really talking about the technology here. Um, there are three scenarios, and the reason why we work with three scenarios, history, academia is full of bad forecasts and predictions, so we didn't want to join that club. We know that social systems are so complex that if you and I, with Carl, sit here and make predictions about the future in 10 years, we're gonna be wrong. And so what we did is we articulate three scenarios. The first scenario, is we're gonna have this new technology that makes us more productive. We have the same faculty, the same business school stay in place, and so now that they're more productive, they can reach more students. For example, that goes back to the executive education online. The second scenario is the one that you are pointing to, is that scenario where we have a constant student population, because really the demand for top MBA programs almost by definition is not 
without limits. And so if we have fixed demand, but a much more productive production technology, well, by definition, there are going to be fewer of us. And then the third scenario that we can talk about in a moment, the third scenario is so disruptive that the business goes fall into pieces. So that second scenario that we're talking about, we call that the clowns and the movie theaters. The effect of the clowns and the movie theaters is that in the you know, 18th, 19th, 20th century, if you wanted entertainment, you would show up to the local village square, you would watch a clown, they would do some funny things in front of you, and you would have a laugh. Well, now you watch a movie. And unfortunately, most clowns have lost their jobs. And so the question that we're debating is to what extent Carl and I here are going to be the clowns of the 21st century. The other, McCool, you asked about whether faculty would resist the change. Clearly, they would under that scenario. But I think we already have pretty good evidence that in the face of cost pressure, there will be a reduction in faculty. I mean, just look, if you look at higher education more generally over the last 10 to 20 years, the number of student credit hours taught by tenured and tenure track faculty has been steadily declining. And there's been an increase in the use of adjunct and part-time faculty. That is a trend driven by cost pressure. Yes, we all didn't like it, but it didn't mean it didn't happen. And so we cannot like it, but in the face of a competing technology that may be better and that's definitely cheaper, it's very hard to argue that, that we can completely resist it. Got it. Well, let's talk a little bit about the third scenario before coming back to the, all three of them. Just if, when you talk about the complete un unbundling of the business school or the emergence of other alternatives to business schools, uh, what do you think might play out in that sort of the third option? Well, I think the first thing to recognize is that the primary reason that an MBA student matriculates at the Wharton School or at any other top business school is because they think it's going to advance their career. And the, to some extent, they want to learn some specific skills and knowledge, but there really is an other, there are other benefits that they look to, to achieve and to obtain, and they are access to careers. Uh, and the development of a social network that will benefit them throughout their, their lives. And, and to some extent, a credentialing or a stamping of approval that dis distinguishes them from other people in the, in, the, in the labor force. If those functions of credentialing, of social network, and of, um, and of access to employers are now provided by others outside of business schools, then I think our role is quite threatened. And right now, they're, they're bundled together, and they include this academic learning piece. But if they ever become unbundled and are started to be provided by other institutions, then I think business schools are threatened. Yeah, the, the, the metaphor that Carl and I use in our report is the, the idea of a Swiss Army knife, right? When you purchase a Swiss Army knife, you don't know yet when are you going to use it, and you don't know which part of the knife you're going to use for, going to use first. It's very similar to our MBA students. They, they come here, they get all this knowledge that one day in their life, and sometimes 10, 15, 20 years into their career, they might have to access, but they don't know when, and they also don't know what part. And so that begs the question, is there another way of delivering that knowledge uh, very much on demand when you want it, instead of buying this library of videos, have much more of an iTunes or Netflix models where you say, like, well, I want to watch that movie today. Well, just click on it and get it when you need it. So you face a situation at work. You're doing some M&A work. Well, why don't you take the M&A course right now when you need it? Of the three scenarios that you outline in your research, uh, which ones do you think are most likely for business schools and why? 
well, the nature of scenarios is that they are all somewhat <laughs> unlikely, otherwise we wouldn't have created them. Uh, let, let, let's add to that that these scenarios, to some extent, are scenarios like we would roll the dice and it's going to be one, two, three, four, five, six, right? It's, it's exogenous, it's a shock, it's randomness, and it's just hard to predict. But to some extent, these scenarios are also active choices. They are strategies, especially at the top schools, especially in the leadership of the school. We can make some choices that will influence the future and that will basically you know, fall into these three buckets. Uh, personally, I feel that we are well underway of playing scenario one. We have done the MOOC for outreach. We're experimenting with executive education. We need to do more, but we're clearly on the way on scenario one. I would love us to play a little with, bit with scenario three. That's the furthest out. Scenario two, I think right now we're in this privileged situation here at Wharton, at least, that the cost pressure has not been quite as big and the implementation feasibility, the kind of the reluctance, obviously, from us as a faculty to embrace this, that's not going to be the first point where we start. So I would put my money as somebody making a strategy on a combination of one and three. Yeah, I, I would, I think there, scenario two, I think is pretty likely there's going to be some decline in faculty size. The, the, the cost pressure is unavoidable. I don't think it'll be a catastrophic decline in faculty. I think it'll be, my prediction would be a modest decline in faculty. Um, I think actually, to build on Christian's point, we need to aggressively pursue scenario one, pathway one, in order to mitigate pathway three. And so in particular, I think we have an opportunity at Wharton and at the other elite business schools to create an unrivaled educational experience for students, but one in which they learn a lot of the rote subjects, the more mechanical subjects, online and without the use of expensive faculty resource. Then when they're here together, we challenge ourselves to give them an experience that they couldn't get anywhere else. And by doing so, we reinforce the value of them participating in the Wharton experience, and that helps us mitigate against the unbundling that could happen in Pathway 3. What surprised you most about this research that you've done? What was your biggest surprise? I have to say, you know, our, our analysis is just arithmetic. It's just adding and subtracting a little bit of division. But we were quite surprised at what scholarship costs, just how expensive it is, and how expensive it is relative to the, the educational activities of the school. That surprised me. Yeah, for me, the biggest surprise has been how seriously threatened our institution and the business school community is. I guess I said at the beginning, this is the institution we've been employed for over 20 years with kind of with graduate school. This has made our careers. That has been, at least for me, I, I think I can speak for Carl on this front, this has been the perfect job that we love, uh, the institution that we love. And nevertheless, you, when you run those numbers, you feel how threatened that ecosystem is. There is no guarantee that in 20 years from now, we're going to have the same business model going as it is right now. Well, though your research focuses primarily on business schools and the MBA program, uh, what do you think uh, in your research could apply more broadly to uh, higher education as a whole? Uh, higher education sees the same pressures and the same threats and opportunities. In fact, to some extent, the other parts of the university have felt them before business schools. Uh, my wife's a professor in, in the English department at Penn, and they've already seen tremendous cost pressures, and they've seen that, that impact, on, that they've seen that impact the faculty ranks, the way they do, and the way they 
do instruction. So I don't really think business schools are terribly unique. They are somewhat unique, I think, in, well, I would say professional schools are somewhat unique in that the primary purpose of paying the tuition dollars is to advance yourself in your career. And that's unique to professional schools as opposed to say an undergraduate experience, which I think is much less threatened because an undergraduate experience is much more about going away, finding your identity, uh, having enabling experiences, building a, a social network. Those things I think are much harder to substitute, at least for the elite universities, the Ivies and so forth. Yeah, so I think certainly we as business schools are particularly threatened because, again, I think we are used to this very high tuition, very high salary type of lifestyle. We could afford ourselves that luxury of not looking at efficiency, something that in many of the second and third year schools and many of the other fields outside business schools, those things, these guys have been under that cost pressure so many years ahead of us that I think they are better prepared. I think the small liberal arts colleges, they don't have this dual purpose that we talked about earlier on, the research and the teaching. For them, it's all about the education of the student. And so as long as they do that, uh, that well, as long as they serve their customers, the student well, people will be willing to pay for it. I think we are threatened in particular about that scenario of unbundling the teaching and the research. That is something that is pretty unique to law schools and business schools. I have an appointment at the medical school where the tradition is much more like, if you want to bring research, if you want to spend time doing research, have somebody pay for it, bring in the research dollars. This cross-subsidy is actually something that is not that broadly applicable other than the, the kind of the social sciences. And I think that's the one where I would feel we're going to see some big pressure mounting. And uh, if we can, can have just one last question, what, what future topics for research uh, do you think are sort of thrown up as a result of what you've studied so far? I would love to see more insights into the scenario three into this unbundling. We make it sound so nasty in many ways, this unbundling, the business school falls into pieces. I think it's actually not that bad, and in many ways quite exciting, right? Because what you do is right now when we do research, there's really, other than the peer evaluation, there's, there's, there's no measurement of quality, there's no feedback whether what we research actually one day that new knowledge is, is, is used anywhere in practice. If you think about scenario three, where the students learn on demand what they need in practice, that would actually create an enormous pull from the market that would direct us where we develop new content, where we develop research, and I think would be actually a very interesting development in terms of guiding our research where it is mattering the most in practice. So I would love to see more of research understanding scenario three, understanding exactly that business model and how that activity system is falling into different pieces, but then these pieces are potentially managed by different organizations. Uh, that is something where I would love to spend more time on and I certainly will. I'd, I'd very much, my personal agenda, I'd very much like to see a quarter to a third of the content of our MBA program uh, moved to more self-directed asynchronous learning online. And I think one of the real challenges there is how you assess competence and how you assess, and, and I think it's actually an opportunity because right now we don't assess competence in business education. We simply assess, did you complete the degree part? Did you complete these courses, get a passing grade in the courses? So I think there's actually an opportunity to improve what we do by developing some methods of assessing how good you are when you graduate 
from the Wharton School. And if we can do that, we can both improve the quality of the education a student gets, and we can possibly make it better by moving some of the, the, the instruction online. Great. Uh, Christian, Carl, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.